Repentance is a movement of your heart away from sin. It's not actually doing anything. If you think that repentance means you've got to go do something for God first, you're going to trip up over the New Testament. Because the New Testament says you're not saved by works. But throughout the New Testament, the apostles and Jesus are saying, you need to repent and you'll be saved. Repentance is not doing anything. It's a movement of your heart. So right now, I'm facing Ajith. Sorry, Ajith. I'm facing Ajith. Now, if I do this right here, I'm facing the other way. You could say I turned away from Ajith, or you could say I'm turning towards the screen. They're the same movement. That's what repentance and faith are. Repentance is describing your movement away from sin. I'm turning from my sin, and faith is turning towards God. They're one movement of your heart. Two words to describe one movement of your heart. That's what repentance is. It's when you're turning away from your love of sin so that you can believe, turn towards God. That's why Jesus, when you read the Gospels, this is how he preaches. Does anybody know what Jesus says when he's going from town to town? He says, repent and believe the gospel. That's not a two-step program. He's not saying, repent, wait 10 minutes, and then believe. It's one movement of your heart. He's saying, turn from your sin, and as you turn from your sin, embrace me, the king, the one that you are made for. So the question is this, have you ever repented? Could you say of your life, yeah, I, I have at one point in my life let go of sin, said I don't want to love sin anymore. I want to treasure Jesus instead. Has that ever happened to you? If it has not, you're not a Christian. No matter what thoughts you might hold in your head, it's how you're first saved and it's a consistent mark of your life if you are a Christian. Martin Luther famously said that all of life is repentance. All of life is one of repentance. And what he's saying is, if you, if you have any experience with your own heart as a Christian, you know that all the time you're having to, to recognize, I've been holding on to sin and I want to let go and enjoy Jesus. Could that be said of your life? That repentance is a consistent mark of your life. If, if someone who knows you really well were describing your life, would they mention repentance at all when they're telling your story? It's important. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see these people's repentance. That's what's happening at the end of Ezra. Ezra 9 and 10, we're seeing massive repentance and confession on a part of these people. So here's the outline. It's almost the exact same outline as last week. I didn't do this on purpose. Just content's totally different, but the outline's the same. We're going to talk about the problem, the seriousness of the problem of intermarriage. We're going to make a couple notes about what's different with these people and us, and then we're going to see four things that we can learn about repentance. So that's where we're going. Talk about the problem, the seriousness of it, make a couple notes of how we're different from these people, and then four things that we can learn from their repentance. So here's the problem. 
verses 1 through 2. Read along with me if you can. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Wait, what's the problem with that? Why is it a problem? We love interracial marriage. As Christians, we love that. We think it's a beautiful thing when people from different ethnic backgrounds commit to one another in marriage. That really is a beautiful thing. So what's going on here? What's happening? What's the problem with the Israelites marrying other people, other women from the land? Well, there are two problems. We talked about this briefly last week. We didn't talk about this one. This may be the most significant of the two. Reason one, Jesus needed to be a Jew for us to be saved. Do a thought experiment with me. What if Jesus, the Son of God, had come to earth as an Ammonite? No. Ammonite was one of the peoples of the land. On, on one hand, it wouldn't matter. We needed Jesus to become a human to save humans. That's what we needed, right? But on the other hand, we couldn't be saved. God had promised to Abraham, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. He's saying through this one family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So this is a serious threat. If these Israelites mix with the people of the land, so much so that there's no real distinction between Jews and any other people, no one gets saved. That's the problem here. That was one of the reasons Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other so much. When you get to the New Testament and you read about Samaritans and how the Samaritans and Jews hate each other, it's because the Samaritans were Israelites who mixed with the people of the land and they became something different. Their religion changed, their culture, everything changed about them. Jesus had to be a Jew because God's promise was through the family of Abraham, all the other families of the world are going to be blessed. That's why Jesus could not be, he could not have come to earth as a Welshman. I'm sorry, Gareth. Or an Indian, or a Filipino, or a Ghanaian. If he did, no one is saved. Do you understand the, the consequences if these people continue to mix? It's not a little deal. I read a commentator this week say that what happens in Ezra 10 when they send the women and children away is racist. And I thought, it's only racist if God's promise to save all the nations of the world through one family was racist. But it's not. God wants all the families of the world to know him. And it matters that Jesus comes as one of the children of Abraham. It's crucial. That's why this is not a small thing. 
This is not just a, oh, ew, yucky, those people around us, we don't want to be near them. Let's get them out of here. It's much bigger than that. Jesus needed to be Jewish for anyone in this room or anyone from any ethnicity to ever be saved. That's a really big deal. Here's the second problem. We talked about this last week. It's the danger of apostasy. If you don't know what that word is, it means apostasy. You walk away from the living God. It's a terrible thing to walk away from the living God. And that was the danger that God warned the people of initially when they entered the land. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 4. This is God speaking. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So you're what God's saying? If you intermarry with these people, your hearts will turn away. And if you turn away from me, I will destroy you. Now, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to read Ezra and go, oh, I wish they could just give it a shot. See what happens. Maybe they can intermarry and their hearts won't go away. Well, no. We have the whole Old Testament before this, and we've seen it hasn't happened. They intermarry with the people of the lands, and they go after their gods again and again and again and again. And God is merciful. But the reason these people were exiled was because their hearts had turned away. They had followed after other gods. The point of God's command here in Deuteronomy 7 is not that the Jewish ethnicity was spiritually superior to other ethnicities. That's not the point. God's not saying, well, you Jews are spiritually superior, so don't mix with people who are inferior to your spirituality. We know that's not true. This book, Ezra 6.21, again and again, we pointed this one out, that any of the people of the lands surrounding the Jews who left their people and abandoned their gods could join in worship. So this is not primarily about ethnicity. Luke reminded me this week that Jesus, the one who had to be distinctly Jewish, his great, 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 great grandmothers were Canaanites. Rahab and Ruth. And the New Testament makes a big deal of pointing it out. These women were Canaanites. What made the Jews distinct was their worship, not their skin color. That's, that's what God's concern is here. As a people, you've got to be distinct. You've got to worship me as children of Abraham. That's what I want for you. And if you intermarry with the peoples, your hearts will turn away. It's just a warning for singles, by the way. Who you marry matters. It really does matter. It will have a significant impact on your heart and your worship. And if you're waiting, pray and wait and wait and pray rather than jump into marriage with someone who doesn't help you know the Lord better. This is as serious as it gets here in Ezra 10. It really is. The salvation of the world is at stake. And those who turn away from God have no future. So, the people come up with a plan 
to separate themselves from the peoples of the land and their wives and children. That's in verses 9 through 14 that Adrienne read for us. They come up with a plan of how they're going to do it, and then they do it. And by the end of verse 17, it's done. Now let's make a few notes. When, when we read Ezra 10, we're supposed to believe that this was the right thing to do. We're supposed to believe it was right for them to send the wives and children away. So why do we still feel so yucky about it? Yucky, gross. Why do we still feel gross about it? It's because even though this was the right thing to do, it was an absolute tragedy. It was a total tragedy and disaster, which is a reminder that sin always destroys. It always destroys, not just you, it destroys everything around you. And even when you turn from your sin, the consequences are often very difficult to untangle. Some of you know this. You've been in terrible relationships you had no business being in and you repented, but still you're having to deal with the consequences and some of them are very painful for you and for others. But there's another reason we feel yucky and it's because the men here, the Israelite men who married these women are the ones who sinned and other people are paying for it. It would be one thing if the men are the ones who sinned and they take all the consequences. But they're sending women and children away. It feels unjust. Now, we don't know from this text if there was some way that these women and children could abandon their false gods and become part of the people of Israel. I mean, it, that could happen. It happened to Rahab. It happened to Ruth. In chapter 621, we see it happen. It's just not clear whether or not there's a provision for these women and children to be added to the people of Israel. So we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. The text also doesn't tell us how these women and children were provided for when they were sent away. We don't know. Shechaniah, in verse 3, I believe, he says, let us put them away according to the law. Now, he may just be saying we, should, we need to be separate, like the law says, or he could be saying we should send them away in a manner that honors the law, that provides for them and cares for them. The reality is we just don't know. The text doesn't tell us, and we don't want to read in what's not there, but... As Christians, we do know this. If anything was done improperly or unjustly here, God will make it right in the end. He will. In the end, on the day of judgment, he will make it right because he always does. One more note before we move on. In the new covenant, that's the relationship Christians now have with God. God doesn't want you to divorce your spouse if they're not a believer. You should know that. This is a pretty unique situation. Now that the promised 
son has come, son of Abraham has come, through whom the whole world would be saved. God doesn't want you to abandon your unbelieving spouse. If you're in a, if you're in a situation like this with a husband or a wife who doesn't know the Lord, read 1 Corinthians 7. There's encouragement for you there to pray for them and to seek their salvation. So, what lessons are there for us in this chapter? Therefore, I believe, by the way, this is not all we could say about repentance. There's a whole lot we could say about repentance, but there are a few lessons for us in this massive scale repentance in Ezra 10 that I hope we can learn. So four things we can learn. Number one, when you sense your guilt and your heart is wanting to turn in repentance, after you've confessed, if you weren't here last week, the whole, the whole sermon was about confession. It's the very first thing you do in repentance before you do anything else. After you've confessed, take steps to obey. Repentance is not the same thing as obedience. I hope we made that clear at the beginning. Repentance is a movement of your heart away from sin. But if your heart moves away from sin, if you really are repentant, then you must obey. That's why Ezra says what he does in verses 10 through 11. He stood up and he said to the people, Ezra did, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Now, the reason we need to point this out, it may be totally obvious to some of you, but the reason we need to point this out is because there are many people who think that trusting Jesus is simply a mental thing. It's only something you do in your mind. You th- you th- if I think the right thoughts about Jesus, I prayed a prayer once, and now I think the right things about him. He died, he rose from the grave, I'm saved. It doesn't matter what my heart loves. It doesn't matter what I do. That's not faith. That's not real repentance. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, to all the people who are gathering around him, they love to listen to his words. They love to hear him talk. It's entertaining to hear this guy talk. And Jesus says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's amazing. There are people that Jesus, that he would say to them, you call me Lord. You call me Lord. You say I'm king. You say I'm the one that brings all good to your life. That I am all good. But when I ask you to do something, you don't do it. That means you don't trust me. I'm not your Lord. If we're repentant, we must obey. Now, I'm not talking about perfect obedience here. There are some people in this room, you know your own heart, that you always feel guilty. And you never feel like your life is enough. You trust the Lord and you try to obey the best you can. When you fail, you confess to him. You try to turn. You try to obey and you feel like it's just not enough. I'm not talking to you. Jesus is pleased 
with any little faith-filled obedience. Any little. Not perfect obedience. Only Jesus is perfect. But is it real? Is it really trusting him? If it is, he's pleased. The people I have in mind are two different types. The first is the one I already mentioned. Someone who thinks it doesn't matter what they do. As long as, as long as they can say the right things about Jesus, then they're saved. And I want you to know they're not. If you think the right thoughts about Jesus, but you don't trust him and do what he says, you don't really know him. The second person is the kind of person who always, or, or when they feel guilty, this person may be a Christian, when they sense their guilt, they wallow in it. They flop around in it for a while, but they never move on. And you may know if this is you. They just kind of feel bad, sink in some emotional quicksand, and then they just wait until they stop feeling bad and go on with their lives. It's kind of like I was thinking about a boss telling a worker, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these two pieces of wood and I want you to nail them together. We're going to make a door frame. And the worker, he saws one of the pieces in half instead. And the boss comes up and says, what are you doing? And the worker's like, oh no. And he grabs one of the pieces of wood and just walks over to the corner and starts smacking himself with it, crying. I'm the worst. The boss would be like, hey, I forgive you. Just get another piece of wood and nail them together. That's what I want you to do. If you're ever just at a loss, you feel down, confess your sin. He'll hear you. He'll receive you. He'll have mercy on you. You don't have to prove yourself to him and obey. Step two, or lesson two. Sometimes we wallow in our guilt because we don't know what to do. Sometimes we just wallow in our guilt, we hate ourselves, and we never move forward because we don't know what to do. So, when you sense your guilt and you feel your heart is repentant, get wisdom from others. Look at this. Verse 3. Shechaniah is speaking to Ezra. And he says, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. He's talking to Ezra. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So this was Ezra's idea. Ezra, who had not married one of the foreign women, it was his idea that they separate themselves. And Shechaniah is saying it. He's saying, your idea, let's do that. And then they assemble together, verse 12, all together. They say, it is so. We must do as you've said. But the people are many. It's a time of heavy rain. We can't stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two. For we've greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. And let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at the appointed times. So together, these people are coming up with a plan of how to repent. If you don't know what steps to take, bring other people in and get wisdom from them. The people in this room are gifts to you from God. And a lot of times we don't know what to do. 
It's unclear to us, and other people can give us wisdom. So seek wisdom from others. Here's the third lesson we can learn. When you sense your guilt and your heart is repentant, after you've confessed, commit to change with other people. So this point is mostly for people who are in patterns of sin that you just can't get out of. I'm stuck in this. I do it again and again and again. Or a sin that's going to be really difficult to leave. Commit to change with others. Verses 2 and 5, or 2 through 5, excuse me. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise and do it, Ezra, for it's your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, so they took the oath. So, these people are swearing to God and to one another that they're going to do what they said. That's the point of the oath. They're not just saying, God, next time I'll do better. They're swearing to each other that they're going to do it, and presumably there would be consequences if they didn't go through it. Probably they would forfeit their land. That's what's threatened in verse 8 if the people don't show up. There will be consequences if people don't follow through with what they've sworn that they would do. They do it again in verses 11 and 12. Ezra tells them, Make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. So they're swearing to God and to each other that they're going to do what needs to be done. People who say that they're repentant but don't want accountability aren't really repentant. People who say they want to change but don't want any consequences for not changing, don't really want to change. If a big step of repentance is required in your life, bring somebody in. Bring somebody in and say, listen, help me. I want you to ask me about this. And let's think of some consequences next time if, if I don't go through with it. Now, Putting accountability and consequences in your life are not the best motivation to stop sinning, okay? So being afraid of what someone's going to think or the consequences of what will happen if you sin again, that's not the best reason, the best motivation to stop sinning. But Let's imagine that you're addicted to Instagram or social media and it really is wrecking your relationship with God and it has become sin to you. And you tell someone, hey, next time I check it, you and I are going to Lulu and we're buying a flip phone. 
and it's flip phone for me from here on out. Okay, so let's say you're on the edge, you're about to get on Instagram, and you stop, and you think, I'm going to have to tell that person, and then I'm going to have to get a flip phone if I go through that, through with it. That's not the best motivation to stop. But if it gives you enough pause in the moment to say, that's not the best motivation to stop. God, I want to worship you. I want to run to you in my quiet, bored moments. I want you to be the thing that satisfies me, the thing that gives me life. Then the accountability and consequences have done their job. They've worked. Make it harder for you to sin the next time when you really feel bad about your sinning. So in those moments when you really feel conviction, make it harder for yourself to sin the next time. We call this striking while the iron is hot. So a blacksmith, someone who bends and makes things out of metal, they pull the iron out of the fire and it's glowing red hot. You know what I'm talking about? That's when they smack it with the hammer so that it bends. They don't wait till it cools off to try to hammer it. You need to make accountability for yourself. Create consequences for yourself. Make it harder for yourself to sin the next time when the heat of conviction is high. Strike while the iron is hot. A repentant heart binds itself with other people's accountability. Just know that a repentant heart goes nuclear. You know what I mean by that? Goes nuclear. A repentant heart isn't thinking, what's the least amount of force that I can use to win this battle? A repentant heart goes for the nuke right away. Say, I'm not giving this thing a chance to survive while the heat of conviction is high. So bind yourself with other people's accountability. Four, a last lesson. Count the cost of following Jesus and remind yourself that it's worth it. And Jesus tells us, before we begin our discipleship, count the cost. And he's not saying that so that we'll count the cost and think, yikes, this isn't worth it. He wants us to count the cost of following him and come to the conclusion, he's better than it all. That's what he wants us to do. And you need to count the cost because repentance will be costly. It will be hard. You'll notice here, this repentance is opposed by four people in verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. So their repentance was opposed by others. We don't know how severe the opposition was. We don't know how costly it was. The people clearly moved on with the plan to repent. But it wasn't smooth sailing. Beyond that, the most striking thing about this whole chapter, when you read this chapter, the thing that hits you most deeply is how costly this repentance was. Women and children were sent away. That's what you're left with when you finish this chapter. Now, it may be a question to you, okay, who, who paid the most cost, the men or the wives and children? 
But what's unmistakable in this chapter is the priority that obedience to God has even over our commitments and our love for our family. That's unmistakable in this chapter. Now, a note, as a member of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ will never tell you to send your family away. But in obeying him, your family might send you away. It's good to be reminded by Jesus. Luke 14, 26. Listen to this man. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He doesn't mean we actually hate our family members. But what he does mean is that in comparison to our love for him, our love for our family members is as hatred. Which is why Matthew 10, 37 says it this way, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How can he make this demand? Reckon with this, by the way. This is one of those passages that people who say Jesus was a good moral teacher, they can't reckon with this passage. Who says this? If I, if I said to you, listen up, you can't be a member of Redeemer Align unless you love me more than anybody else in your family. You shouldn't wait for the sermon to be over. You should walk out go to one of those two rooms over there, have a member meeting, and kick me out of the church. Why? Because I'm not worthy of that kind of love. If you were that committed to me, it would destroy your life. I'm not that precious. But he is. He is. He's so precious. He is the one who is more valuable than anything and all things combined. And he wants you and I to reckon with it. He wants us to count up the cost, all that we could possibly lose, and know he is worth it all. That's what he wants for us. You don't turn from your sin in repentance because a preacher says, bad, bad, stop sinning. It's bad. You turn because you've tasted that Jesus Christ is the fountain of living water. And when you drink from him, you never thirst again. That's why you turn. The biggest thing you need in your repentance is to taste his glory. You just don't need somebody to try to pry sin out of your hands. You need to taste it. 
So the most important things that you do for repentance need to happen in the moments when you're not actually repenting for something. The most important thing you can do for your repentance happens in the moments before you actually need to repent of anything. Your soul needs to taste Jesus. You need to fight before the battle begins. You need to prepare for the war before the war starts. You need to fight for repentance before you even notice there's something you need to repent of through tasting his glory. We may sound like a broken record here of saying, guys, you've got to spend time in the word and in prayer. You need it. But this is why. How else are you going to taste the glories of Jesus if you're not spending time in his word, seeing the treasure that he is with your own eyes in the morning or at night, spending time in prayer, fellowshipping with him, or coming to a gathering like this? This is why gatherings are so important, because this is a moment for us, not just to learn a few facts for our head, but for our souls to taste. Yes, this is true. He is the fountain of living water. You need to taste his glory because as you taste his glory, as you taste the glory of the infinite almighty son of God who has always existed and has never needed anything, becoming a man. And as you taste the glory of that perfect man living 33 years, not one bad thought, not one evil deed, dying on a cross for you, when you taste the glory of the fact that he rose from the dead, he beat death, and he's reigning at the right hand of God, praying for you, when you taste that glory, it doesn't take much for you to want to turn away from your sin and embrace him. Knowing steps to take in repentance, like getting accountability, figuring out what obedience looks like, getting wisdom from other people, that's helpful, but it's not sufficient. We don't just want to give ourselves tools that can pry our grip off of sin. What we want is to enjoy his glory so that we know when we turn, we're embracing something that's so much better. That's what we need. Oh God, make it so. Just one last thing. For those who do feel that you've gone too far for repentance. This may have happened at some point in your life. You may be here right now where you feel like, that's great for everybody else, but I'm too far gone the path of sin, or the thing I've done is too great to turn from. I can't. In verse 2, Shechaniah, this man, he tells Ezra, We've broken faith with our God, and we've married, married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Why? Why is there hope? This is like the 12,000th time the people of Israel have, have failed. Why is there hope? Why is it not the fact that when they confess to God, he says, that's right, I've been watching, and now it's time. It's over. Because this man, Shechaniah, knows the character of God. 
that he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And anyone, hear this, even if you don't need it right now, you will need it someday. Anyone who turns to him, no matter what they've done or how many times they've done it, if they confess and leave their sin, he'll receive them. As full children. Proverbs 28, 13 says it this way. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's the promise for you and me. There's more than enough mercy in, in Jesus. He will receive you. So let's be zealous and repent.